You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome in. Late Kick is live. I want to stress the word live. We are back here in the home studio. It is Tuesday night, January 12th, the year of our Lord, 2021, which is the first time I've said 2021 in this studio. We are jam-packed, as jam-packed as it could possibly be tonight. Obviously, we've got wall-to-wall reaction to the national championship game. Alabama went full hate crime on Ohio State and Miami, so we are certainly going to talk about that. We are going to do a show, as we always do. I just kind of feel like I need to reset the table for those of you who love college football, and we're not going to shame you for it because we love it just like you do, and we're not going to talk about everything that's wrong with the game. And so, you know, if you just want to suspend all that and just spend some time like you would sitting there eating barbecue at home or sitting out on the front porch and talking with your grandpa, that's kind of the way that we format this show. So we're going to have some fun tonight. We're happy to be back. Do we need to fix anything about college football? I will discuss. I think there are some grade A hot trash ideas being thrown around that I don't buy into, but yet I do think there are some, maybe not fixes, but maybe tweaks that we can make to the sport. Uh, They're a lot more simple in theory than they are to execute, but we'll discuss that. I, I certainly don't think you'll disagree with my suggestions. You may want something in addition to it, Uh, but we're also going to talk about the game last night and in the broader context, this Alabama team. Uh, I got a lot, both things you have seen and some behind the scenes feedback that I've gotten from Alabama this entire year that we can start to um, we start to unpack now. You know, now that all's on the table, don't have to hold anything back. So, you know, it's, I, I like this, I like this time of year because we can really start sharing some information. You know, I've got notebooks of information that I get from some of our team site guys around the country, some folks that we have access to and that we can talk to behind the scenes at programs. Uh, but, you know, you're a lot of times you're told stuff and you're said, hey, keep that between us, at least until January. Well, it's January. So we can start talking about that. So we will. Um, not all tonight, but we will. Uh, things will be busy. So things are also going to be busy in the coming weeks. And I want to remind you, I know, well, our, our audience is pretty diehard. So most of you, you don't need to hear this, but I want to stress, you know, if you are transitioning from a casual college football fan to an everyday 24, seven, 365 college football fan, make sure you're hanging out on this channel because now more than ever, I think this off season more than ever, uh, will give you an indication of the years to come, how busy things are going to be. The coaching calendar has changed. The transfer portal is changing the way that the offseason works in the sport of college football. Behind the scenes, I can tell you programs have been jockeying for the better part of a year now in building up their analyst and player personnel departments with the transfer portal in mind. You know, it's too much that to be on a college football head coach's plate, but yet they know Part of the lifeblood is now going to be, you know, recruiting, obviously, but then the transfer portal. So we've got to we got to corner our share of the market on that, or yet we'll get left behind. So because of that, we'll have a lot to talk about. I think we'll have more insight in the off season, more access to information in the off season, and some behind the scenes stuff that we can get to you before the mainstream does than we even do during the season. So you want to stay tuned for that. Where have we been? I told you the other night, but if you had not tuned in, I. Last did a live show, Colin, in this studio. I want to say it was the 19th. It's been almost a month since we've done a live show in this studio. 
So I go home. Naturally, I get COVID. I lost 16 pounds during that time. So I know a lot of you think that I wear medium white t-shirts. I don't. But right now, I think I could fit into one. So we I ate a lot of Taco Bell over the last few days, trying to, you know, dirty bulk back to my normal playing weight. But a lot of you had a lot of very nice things to say. Um, Director Colin did a great job of cutting our podcast where, you know, we could still get you a product, an audio product. You guys still tuned in. So we really thank you for that. And a lot of you were offering nice, kind words of encouragement behind the scenes. So thank you so much for that. I tried to answer as many of you as I could, but there were literally hundreds of you. So thank you so much. So I'm going to start here. Uh, Colin, let, what I'm about to say, we won't clip into the VOD portion, but our buddies, college football nerds on Twitter, um, I think it's just at college football nerds. I love those guys. Those guys were the inspiration behind me going into the YouTube game a couple of years ago. I got a lot of feedback from them. Um, they, they very much encouraged me. And so I appreciated it. But like, I, I talk to those guys a lot and they do really good content over on their channel too. So if you don't already know about that, check it out. But I saw them, I don't know which one of them it was, but I saw one of them tweet out a few minutes ago as I was pulling into the parking lot, I guess it's a couple hours ago now. Uh, they said just kind of a little reminder here. I'm paraphrasing, but in 2007, we're going to be talking about Nick Saban a lot tonight in 2007, Nick Saban declines Alabama. Alabama goes for Rich Rodriguez, who was the head coach at West Virginia. A lot of you remember this, well chronicled. He verbally agrees. I remember I was in the parking lot of Columbus State University in Columbus, Georgia, pulling out when I heard Colin Cowherd on ESPN Radio announce that, not so fast, we're hearing now Rich Rodriguez has declined. He has kind of rescinded his acceptance of the Alabama offer verbally. He's decommitted from Alabama. And then Alabama and Mal Moore, the late Mal Moore, set their sights on Nick Saban, went to Miami, would not leave without him, wouldn't take no for an answer. So they went after Nick Saban. They got Nick Saban at Alabama. His first year, famously, he loses to Louisiana Monroe. Since that time, Nick Saban has won six national championships at Alabama. Last night, obviously, he was busy winning his sixth championship at Alabama, his seventh overall. A day later, wouldn't you know it, there's Louisiana Monroe hiring Rich Rodriguez as offensive coordinator. If you want to know why we don't manufacture storylines and we don't really talk about storylines all that much on this show, it's because you don't have to clickbait your way through this sport. This sport, if you'll just sit back and let it work and let it play itself out, it will give you better storylines than you could ever make up on your own. As long as you're halfway decent at observing and comprehending what you're seeing, think about that. Like if I were to tell you in late 2006, Joe Kynes is on the uh, field. He's talking like a jackhammer at halftime of the Independence Bowl. Um, you're about to get Rich Rodriguez, but then you're not going to get him. But then you're going to get the guy who already turned you down. He's going to average winning a national championship every other year throughout the duration of his time at Alabama, which is going to be like a decade and a half, two decades, who knows. Meanwhile, the Rodriguez guy in 2020 is going to be taking an OC position at the University of Louisiana at Monroe that's going to beat Nick Saban in his first year at Alabama. No one believes that. They wouldn't even put that on Turner Classic Movies, and yet here we are. So with that, now, Colin, let's dive in. Alabama splattered Ohio State all over Miami Gardens, Florida last night. The final score was 52-24. to 24. If you watched this game and you are not of the age of at least 18, I really hope for your sake you had a parent sitting next to you because that was one of those TVMA specials. You don't get them very often in a championship setting, but we got it. It is the worst out-of-conference loss for Ohio State University since they lost to something called Worcester in 1890. 
I think maybe I had a great uncle named Worcester. Never heard of Worcester. I mean, aside from that very famous 1890 team, and who could forget how good they were then. So what started out, I mean, like I was watching this game, obviously, what started out as a football field, it kind of ended in sort of a crime scene fashion. But I got a lot of admiration for Ohio State. And so on the back end of this segment, we're going to be talking about Ohio State. But if you want to know about how to adapt and you want to know why pretty much everyone at this point, if you don't have an axe to grind, everyone now views Nick Saban as the greatest of all time. And you should have if you had good sense about yourself before last night. It was eight years ago that they played a national championship game in New Orleans against LSU. It was that rematch, you know, the one that ended up um, giving us a playoff, you know, because we couldn't have that happen again. We can't be having Alabama getting a shot in a national title. So let's have a playoff to keep them out of the title game. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm not talking about that yet. But what I do want to tell you is January 9th, 2012, Alabama plays LSU. Alabama dominates LSU. Uh, They put up 384 total yards. They had 21 first downs. And they had 21 points. They beat LSU 21 to nothing. Okay? Last night, in the first half against Ohio State, they had 389 total yards. They had 25 first downs. And they had 35 total points. So they outgained in all three of those key metrics their own dominating effort about eight or nine years ago in the first half of a game against Ohio State. Really incredible to watch. So let's dive into it. What did we say needed to happen? For those of you who watched our game preview, I thought that staying on schedule and just meaning staying ahead of the sticks was probably as imperative for Ohio State in this game as any game that they've played all year. The reason's pretty obvious. There has not been a team, even Indiana, all due respect to Tom Allen and company, there has not been a team that Ohio State had faced this year that put the fear of God into them. And by that, I mean, you knew when you looked across the field, we're going to have to keep up with that team. I mean, they're playing Northwestern in the Big Ten title game, knowing they can all but afford to take a nap the first half. Northwestern's not going anywhere. They're going to sit there with their 7, 10, or 13 points, and whenever we're ready, we're just going to run by them. And that's exactly what they did. Well, they couldn't do it here. So they had to stay on schedule because they could not be putting Justin Fields in a whole bunch of obvious passing downs. And I told you in our preview video, I thought probably the most important stat line in this game was drawing a line on third downs offensively for Ohio State, third down and four or shorter, third down and five or greater. So in the first half last night, sure enough, they had five situations of third and five or more, and they were one of five on those attempts. Uh, They also had one that was not converted, but then you had a targeting call on battle. Um, That's another topic for another day. But Alabama did not allow any kind of balance. Alabama did not allow Ohio State to be balanced. And as a result, aside from one long run uh, that was quarterback run in the first half, you never really had Ohio State, after Sermon goes out on the first drive, you never had them able to own things on the ground like maybe they would have had an opportunity to had they been at full strength there. I'm not making excuses for them, nor did they, to their credit, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But there was never any balance allowed. Even when they forced the turnover, did Ohio State, and evened it up at 14, man, a lot of the critical metrics in that game uh, had already started to tilt heavily in favor of Alabama. History, I think, is going to remember a blowout in this game because of obviously the final score being 52 to 24. And, you know, Director Collin told me he even got a little shut eye during the second half. And uh, as it turns out, you could afford to do that because it turned into a sleeper. But I want to tell you what was probably the most impressive thing I think I saw in a big game all year this year. 
it was in the second half. It was the early portion of the second half. You look at 52 to 24, and uh, you know five years from now, when you remember this game, you'll say, it was never closed, dude. Ohio State never had a shot. Well, that's false, because there was a moment in this game, early portion of the second half, Devontae Smith, I think it was the opening drive of the second half, he's out. He gets knocked out. He's done. You will not see him again wear a crimson uniform. And Waddle's far less than 100%. And Alabama has allowed Ohio State to pull to within 14 points. It's a two-possession game. And Ohio State went boom, boom, boom. Bama opened the second half. They put up a field goal. And Ohio State goes right down the field. Guys, it's a 14-point game. Smith's not on the field for the rest of the night. Waddle is 60% at best. You do not have any dynamic, game-changing options at receiver. In other words, you think the identity for Alabama is no longer on the field. I mean, the Heisman Trophy winner is not out there. They didn't allow another point the rest of the night. Not only that, they scored 14 more of their own. Lose Devontae Smith. Have Ohio State have seemingly all the momentum in the world. There's some juice on their sideline, and they outscore them by two touchdowns the rest of the way. That is impressive. Now I want you to think about this. So zoom it out a little bit to understand the brilliance of Steve Sarkeesian, if you don't already, to understand how brilliant their offense was this year and why I think it's the best offense we've ever seen. It's because it didn't lean on any one guy. It didn't hinge on any one guy. They lose Waddle. You got the Heisman Trophy winner over here. And to be honest with you, if Waddle stayed healthy all year, they probably would have fought over the Heisman Trophy. And as it turns out, They end up kicking it into another gear once they lose Waddle. Well, last night, I mean, if you just think about losing Devontae Smith off the field, that's enough. But think about this. If you do a year-over-year moment-in-time comparison, last night, early portion of the third quarter, Smith's out. I want you to think about this. Don't just think about what they had coming into the game versus what they had at that moment. Think about one year earlier. What would they have had on the field one year earlier And then what did they have on the field at that very moment last night with 10 minutes to go in the third quarter? You take Jerry Judy off the field, Henry Ruggs off the field, a 100% Jalen Waddle off the field, Devontae Smith off the field, Tua Tonga-Vailoa, Jedrick Wills. You're taking all those first-rounders off the field, and they're still in a situation where they're just going up and down the field, seemingly at will, in a national championship game. That is Steve Sarkeesian. Like, that's some good players uh, Najee Harris had a phenomenal effort last night. I'm going to throw a stat at you right now. For you longtime Alabama fans, it's probably going to blow your mind. But man, Steve Sarkeesian is in a league of his own amongst the most elite minds in the game. He's in a league of his own right now. Cannot wait to see what he does at Texas. But when you combine that culture and you combine Steve Sarkeesian running things, man, Nick Saban, you know, I heard my dad say the other day, and I think he's right. Nick Saban has been famous in the past for just chewing out coordinators on the sideline. I mean, if he wasn't doing it to Lane Kiffin, he wasn't breathing. I don't think he ever had a single instance this whole year where he even looked at Steve Sarkeesian sideways. Did you ever see it? I didn't see it, man. It's like he was he was so docile. It's If he wanted to nitpick something, what was he going to find? I don't know. So Last night, Christian Barmore made millions of dollars. Uh, I assume he's going to be gone. Uh, he was a force the entire evening. Uh, reminded you a lot of Quinnen Williams in years gone by for Alabama. Devontae Smith had more in a half than some wide receivers have in a month of playing this sport. Just incredible. 215 yards at the half, had 12 catches. You know, he needed some ridiculous number, like 19 catches in the game or 20 catches to surpass Amari Cooper for all-time receptions in Alabama history. And 
I'm not so sure he wasn't going to get it. If they let him play a full game, they probably, I mean, all they had to do is keep throwing to him because no one's shutting him down. Poor Sean Wade, my goodness. Put the body tape on the field for that kid. But he was going to have 20 catches last night. I fully believe that. Uh, so, you know, that injury probably cost you seeing that guy make even more history. But Mac Jones was great. But I'll tell you who stepped up, and it was John Mechie. John Mechie had a couple of drops early on that probably had a lot of you Bama fans yelling at your TV screen. There were some big third downs. There were some big move-the-chain moments in the second half, again, where the game, it's not out of reach. And you're scared because you've lost Devontae Smith, Waddles on one-and-a-half legs here. Man, what are we going to do? Could we bog down here? Never happened. Uh, John Mechie was really big in being able to move the chain several times, but so was Najee Harris. Najee Harris didn't have a 150-yard rushing performance last night, but what he did is he had several of those instances where hut, handoff. Oh, Najee Harris has stopped the line of scrimmage. What's that? He gained seven yards? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, Najee Harris stopped in the backfield. He, he gained five. He gained six yards. Oh, that's interesting. Just fall forward every single time. Fall forward, fall forward. Here's the stat that's going to blow your mind, though. I had a kind of a player personnel type today tell me Najee Harris is one of the very few guys that you'll see that they would grade, you know, if you were talking recruiting, they would grade like a five-star caliber running back and receiver. Um, how about this stat? If you're an Alabama fan, think about what I'm about to tell you. Najee Harris wraps his career at Alabama with as many receiving touchdowns as David Palmer had. He's not even a receiver. And so that's how good Najee Harris was. 11 total receiving touchdowns in the career for Najee Harris at Alabama. Had three total touchdowns last night. I got to give Ohio State a lot of credit. I watched Ryan Day's postgame press conference last night. That's a guy who was missing Tommy Togiai on defensive line. I mean, they were missing several guys. Trey Sermon goes out early, probably an integral part of their game plan. Justin Fields is toughing it out. In other words, you had every reason to kind of try and make some excuses for yourself, and he made none because that's not the kind of guy he is. Uh, but also, I would encourage you to remember, uh, I think I thought Kirk Herbstreet made a phenomenal point last night. Did you ever, in a national championship game, did you ever, with two of the most loaded rosters in the sport, even so much as see players talking to each other? There was none of it. Back in the day, you know, my favorite rivalry in the SEC for a long time has been Bama-LSU because there's such an immense amount of mutual respect between the programs, and there's never any jawing back and forth. Very rarely do you see a, a personal foul flag thrown. That's kind of the way it was last night. And that's not a surprise because if you watch the way Ohio State carried themselves after they spanked Clemson, all that talk out of Clemson leading up to it, Ohio State goes in there and just methodically uh, drains them dry right there on the field. And then they just kind of they just kind of dust themselves off. We're on to the national championship game. We're not even going to let their name come out of our mouth in any kind of coarse way until we get in the closed doors and confines of our own locker room. That's, that's the kind of program they run. That's why I have no doubt that Ohio State's going to be here for a long time to come. And I can not guarantee you, but I would put my money on the fact that over the next few years, Ryan Day's going to be hoisting one of those national championship trophies. It may even come at the expense of Alabama one of these days. But you look at the way that those two teams are recruiting, not going anywhere. But as of last night, the craziest recruiting reality in the history of college football remains intact. And that is the ability for Nick Saban or one of his assistants to walk in a living room and say, hey, Nick Saban got here in 2007, about to go into the 2021 season. I've been here like 14 years or whatever it is. Every kid I've ever recruited 
LSU and Alabama that stayed the duration has won at least one national championship. Okay, now you make the decision. You go play wherever you want to. Um, kind of subtly transitioning here, there were obviously a lot of folks that wanted to talk about, you know, how does this team stack up to the 2019 LSU team? We can talk about that down the road. But I'll tell you this. I think this was, Colin, let me give you a fresher cut in here. I think this was Nick Saban's best team in Alabama. A lot of people wanted to talk about them compared to 2019 LSU. That's great. Like We can do that. We got a long offseason ahead of us. But man, I was looking right before we came on air at the final coaches poll that had been released. And it's not like I treat this poll as gospel. It's just a random reference point. Uh, It turns out Alabama beat the number two, number four, number five, number seven, and number 12 teams in the final coaches poll. That's getting it done. I know a lot of folks out there falsely very falsely, uh, I would even dare to say ignorantly, look and say, well, you know, uh, the SEC was kind of down a little bit this year. No, they weren't down. Like, what are you talking about? You know, it's only down until you watch Mississippi State go beat Tulsa in a bowl game. Like, it's only down until you watch Kentucky uh, go beat Indiana in a bowl game. I know it may seem down just because this team's laying waste to everybody. No, it's still the SEC, and they didn't have any Kent States thrown in there this year. I got told the other day, and I didn't realize this, I got told that anytime I need to make a pejorative G5 comparison, I always bring up Kent State. And maybe that's a habit that I don't realize I have. So I apologize to the folks at Kent State. I don't mean to do that. So uh, let's pick a new team. Um, Toledo. There you go. You guys love them. So um, be that as it may, there were no... FCS teams or G5 teams on the schedule this year, man, they were just good. They were just really, really good this year. But I want to remind you of something. Over the last seven to eight years, they have not always had elite culture there. Well, let me let me scratch that. They've had elite culture. They have not always had elite internal dynamics. There are many statistical reasons that you could use to argue this is the best team that they've had there. But when you ask them, when you talk to folks at Bama, they don't mention any stats. They don't mention any final scores, average points in conference play. They don't mention any of that. They just talk about the people inside the organization. They hardly ever miss on talent evaluations, but famously internally down there, over the last seven to eight years, they made some bad character evaluations And Nick Saban made a major shift internally a few years back to sort of gut his program and redefine the kind of player and the kind of coach that they were going to bring into Alabama. This was not some public spectacle. As far as you knew, it was just business as usual at Alabama. They had some bad internal dynamics. They were still winning, but they had some very, very poor internal dynamics. I'll tell you one that was really famous was the year, it's only a couple of years ago, that year they went out and got spanked by Clemson. That was a terrible year internally for them. It sounded like excuse making, like it is what it is. So they put such a premium on character development and character identification in the recruiting process. You're seeing the fruit borne out. Now, they rebuilt the culture from the inside out. How well-oiled is that machine now? Consider this. You just watched Devontae Smith catch one of like a million touchdown passes he caught this year. You know, Smith comes in in that famous 2017 class, right? And he catches the touchdown to win the title game. And now last night he toasted Ohio State on his way out the door as a senior and rewrote a lot of the record books. So in his time there, you know, that's 2017, 18, 19, 20. From the time that Devontae Smith was a freshman and they won a title to the time he was a senior and won a title, do you realize there's not a single assistant coach on that roster last night that was there when he was a true freshman? 
They have overturned everything. The entire organization internally overturned. The only thing that stayed the same was the head coach. How defined is that culture? He didn't even have to run the team this year. Nick Saban didn't even run the team. When you watched how how teary-eyed he was last night, when you watched how happy he was and how effusive he was in his praise and how often he found the nearest microphone to make sure and remind you that his best players are also his best people, it's because it makes you hard, if not impossible, to stop when you've got an organization rolling like that. But think about being a head coach and getting out of the way because your players have taken over ownership of the team in a way that most coaches could only dream of happening. And that's with a team that's, you know, eight win, nine win caliber. Man, this is the best players in the world. He's got the best players in the world. A lot of them should be millionaires right now, but yet they decided collectively to come back and play college football. Also, imagine having a culture where you have you got guys who are injured. You got Jalen Waddell on the field last night with a scar still very visible on his leg. You got Landon Dickerson who just hopped up off the operating table like five minutes ago, and I don't know what he probably had to get shot up with last night to even be able to walk out on the field. You got folks fighting against their own injured bodies to get on the field just because they want to participate, just because that's the kind of culture that's been ingrained there. Can you imagine building that kind of culture? See, a lot of coaches can build a culture during the climb that gets guys fired up and ready to play. A lot of coaches can do that. Far fewer coaches can be favored all the time and be expected to win all the time and still have guys that hungry. Like Those guys are ready to fight each other if they can't get on the field with millions to lose. You know, that's I saw a lot of people talking about that today, and that's fine. Like, you can have your opinion of should Jalen Waddle have been out there. I'm just telling you, it's not even a thought. In those guys' minds, it's not even a thought. Like, you may have an uncle or a mom get in your way and physically keep you from playing, but if it's left up to those players and it was, it wasn't even a thought to not go play. Like, this is what I came back for. When I talked to folks in the offseason at Alabama before the season started, they wanted a piece of LSU. They came back for a piece of Auburn. They came back to win the SEC championship, and they came back to win a national championship, all of which they thought they should have done last year and they weren't able to do. And they checked them off one by one. When we talked like we did about the LSU game, when it initially got postponed and they were fighting so hard internally to go play that game, and then when it got rescheduled, the language I used for what I expected to happen when Alabama played LSU, it's because I knew how important the game was to all those kids who came back. They, I didn't, it didn't matter if they were favored by seven touchdowns. Um, they were going to go execute LSU on live TV, and they did. So they accomplished all their goals last night. But see, there's a big, big difference. Like when, when you're on the climb, so you still got something to prove versus when you've proven everything you can prove, and yet you're still playing like you're starving. And you hadn't taken a bite of food in like three weeks. And I'll tell you something else that a lot of coaches can do. A lot of coaches, you know, a lot of coaches are willing to change their program when it looks broken, when they're losing games, you know, when they're hovering right at or just below 500. Everyone knows it's time to change them. Nick Saban was on top of the world. Nick Saban, at no point did Alabama ever drop from being perceived as the number one or at worst, the number two program in America. And yet he changed everything. He hit the dump button. He realized several years ago, this sport's changing. And whereas a lot of people who had won, in other words, had their philosophy validated on the national stage would have been prideful and just 
you know, said, all right, well, I just got to toughen up and we got to, we got to figure out a way to, to beat these teams. We got to figure out a way to keep winning. Well, Nick Saban looked around and said, Hey man, my way is probably not going to work anymore. So I'm going to change everything. Even though we're on top, we haven't even lost. Like we've, we've not even had anything worse than a 10 win season around here. I'm going to change anyway. Far fewer coaches would ever do that. That's why I think that was one of the most legendary tactical moves that you'll ever see in college football history. I think it's led to this team this year being the best he's ever had. I'm not so sure you may not have better teams to come down the road because this recruiting class they've got coming in, I think, is the best he's ever had. And that's off the heels of that 2017 class, which is just absurd. It's like rolling out a Dead Sea scroll worth the first-round draft picks. But man, they're operating at a level that he warned you about a few years ago when he now famously made that saying, made that quote, is this what you want college football to be? Um, You know, now no one's laughing at it. Back then it was like, listen to him whining. It wasn't that. It was much more a warning than it was whining. Started with a W. You just had the wrong word. But there is a big difference between coaches who are capable of tasting greatness versus coaches who are greatness. Because the coaches who are greatness, they don't motivate their team based on doubt. They don't use a fuel source motivation of doubters and disrespect and chips on shoulders. You don't ever hear that kind of language come from Alabama. That's not their fuel source. That's not what that process he talks about all the time is about. And that's why when they get on top of the world, they keep operating at razor sharp efficiency. They're like the uh, proverbial death star. They just are. They just continue to dominate you and pound your face into submission because that's the way they're wired. They don't need you to disrespect them. They just operate at a standard instead of, you know, based on how hyped up am I this week? How much did you doubt me? What kind of locker room or bulletin board material do I have this week? That's how you taste greatness. That's not how you are greatness. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Moving on. Uh, So, you know, we've got a season in the books. Every time we have a season in the books now, it seems more and more, uh, it's very popular to see a lot of the national websites and a lot of the national media types talk about all the things that are wrong with college football and everything that we need to fix with college football. And I am of a little bit different mentality. I like to celebrate what's good about the sport. That doesn't mean occasionally you don't have something that needs to be fixed. Okay, I'm, I'm not above fixing what's wrong with the sport. It's just that some of the things that are being pointed out as flaws with the sport, I don't view as flaws. Or if I do, I don't share what popular opinion is on how to fix them. So I also tell you all the time, I am not a believer that just because someone's upset, it means something's wrong. I'm not a believer that just because you're not getting the outcome you want, or I'm not getting the outcome I want, it means that something needs to be changed. Like people being upset is not an automatic reason to change anything. But 
that is not the overwhelming sentiment right now. So the overwhelming sentiment is once we expand the college football playoff, then we'll be good. I've done many a segment on this. I'm not going to focus solely on expanding the playoff. Uh, but, you know, I know a lot of you, even in this audience, you believe that would solve a lot. So most of the sentiment that I get on this is, well, if we expand the playoff, it'll give more teams a shot. Okay. Uh, if we expand the playoff, it'll give more teams a shot. And then because more teams make the playoff, then recruiting will even out. You won't have such a monopolistic stranglehold of just a few teams getting all the best recruits because now recruits will see that I can go to more places and make the playoff. Hey, I talk to a lot of recruits. I talk to the big boys. I have yet to have one of them tell me on their list of priorities is making the playoff. It's not what they talk about. I haven't talked about this a whole lot live. There is this huge detachment in what recruits value versus what you think they value, but I'll leave it alone. I'll, I'll play devil's advocate. I'll pretend that you're dead on the money with that. Let's move on. Uh, also, you, some of you guys think that if we expand the playoff, then we'll have more meaningful games, and that means less opt-outs late in the season. And, you know, again, that loosens the stranglehold on just the few elites having a death grip on college football. I am telling you unequivocally, recruiting is not evening out if you expand the playoff. I am telling you that. I know a lot of you don't believe that. You are going to have to learn it the hard way. What aggravates me is the retort sometimes that I get on someone that can't put a well-fashioned argument together to counter that. They say, well, it wouldn't hurt to try. Yeah, here's the problem. Expanding a playoff is like squeezing toothpaste out of the tube. Okay, You say, well, let's just try it. It isn't trying. It's like expanding government. Once it expands, it never contracts. Once you expand the college football playoff, I know it's not going back. Okay, You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So you're going to have to excuse me if I value the regular season in this sport, and I think it's the most precious and in some cases priceless commodity in this sport, and you want to devalue it because you want to run experiments with the end of the season. I'm not a fan of that. That's why I get a little worked up about it. But you will see, expand that playoff to four teams or 40 teams, the same programs are going to dominate recruiting. I had a guy last night come at me on Twitter and tell me, how do you expect Boise State and Houston to compete with Alabama and Ohio State in recruiting if they can't have a shot at the playoff? And I told him, I don't expect them to compete with them, period. Like, I can guarantee you in this upcoming recruiting cycle, Alabama and Ohio State, I don't care how big your playoff is, will sign 25 kids rated higher than the highest rated kid that signs with Boise. And it'll happen the next cycle and the next cycle and the next cycle. I don't care if Boise makes the playoff. It's going to happen the next cycle and the next cycle and the next cycle. What you think recruits are looking for versus what they are looking for are two different things. And that's a good program at Boise. Like, I'm not knocking Boise. You know my belief. My belief is there should be a separate playoff for the G5, and then we could have two distinct entertaining products instead of trying to shoehorn two entities that don't belong in the same conversation into the same conversation. It's not about quality of team. I mean, the G5 is big. It's not one conference. There are several teams that have that, that proverbial G5 sticker on their helmet. Inevitably, any given year, they're, they're going to be at the very top of the G5. They're going to be probably two or three teams that could really compete at the highest levels of Power Five. 
That's never been my argument. I've never said and never will I say, I don't even think UCF could compete on a field with Ohio State or Alabama. I mean, they'd probably get beat, but I don't focus on that. I, I, don't, I didn't say this year, oh, I doubt Cincinnati could compete with the best teams. It's not that. They could compete with them. The problem is, and always will be, there is a gulf in strength of schedule between what you go through in the G5 to make it to the top versus what you go through at the Power 5 level to make it to the top. Always will be. So I've never even viewed these as belonging in the same conversation. But let me continue because I've made that point several times. Let me continue because here's the right strategy. If you want to even out uh, the juice in recruiting, <clears throat> had to clear my throat, sorry. If you want to even out things in recruiting, you need to position yourself for what's coming in the department of name, image, and likeness. It, I know it just got delayed. It's coming. The programs out there, you mark my words, not the top dogs, they're already there. But programs like Arkansas or Arizona State or Michigan State, programs that we don't talk a lot about as being there in the top 10 on National Signing Day. The, and you could talk about Cincinnati, Houston, Memphis, the G5 types. The programs out there that learn to properly leverage and harness name, image, and likeness legislation when things become legal that aren't legal right now. And the programs that are able to do that and own the transfer portal, those are going to be programs that even it out a lot more than teams that, if we ever expand the playoff, find their way into being the seven seed one year. It's not going to make a bit of difference. I'm, I'm telling you that. You're going to have to find out the hard way if you disagree with me. I know how, the way it's going to have. It's not going to have the impact you think it's going to have. But if you're able to put together very unique packages in the name, image, and likeness department, if you're able to have partnerships between your university and some big-time brands in the name, image, and likeness department, then all of a sudden, you got stuff kids actually do care about. They don't care that you had the sixth seed last year locked up or that you were the number eight and you played the number one and got run by 35 points, but hey, at least we made the playoff. They don't care. They don't care about it. What they care about is what kind of value can you offer them? That's what they care about. So if you own those two avenues, you put yourself in a lot more advantageous position. Oh, but we won't have opt-outs, will we? That's Listen, you may be somewhat right about this. You know, if you obviously if you expand the playoff, then there are going to be a, a few more meaningful games later in the year, uh, meaningful meaning having playoff ramifications tied to them, than there would have been otherwise. I don't use that language. I don't call games meaningless. I don't do that because I love the sport. Uh, but a lot of people do. Um, I got a question for you, though. Who promised you that a kid will never opt out of a playoff game? I know your logic tells you they wouldn't. But see, logic's a funny thing. Logic evolves based on new realities. Ten years ago, we didn't have playoff in the sport, did we? And uh, no one in their right mind would ever even talk about uh, the words opt out. No one would even say that in college football, much less if you were in what is now known as a New Year's Six game or a BCS game. Like, you're going to the Fiesta Bowl? You're going to the Orange Bowl? Yeah, it's not the BCS title game, but those are huge games. No one would ever opt out of those. Well, then, here's what's ironic, and here's why I don't think expanding the playoffs is the answer to any of this. We had a pre-playoff world where only two teams made the title game, and yet no one was ever opting out. Then we expand and we go to a four-team playoff. And then, after a couple of years, players start opting out. And now the answer that the answer to solving what the playoff brought with it is to expand the playoff more. Okay, so some playoff led to opt-outs because, you know, the teams that didn't make the playoff got told their games were meaningless. So let's expand the playoff more. More playoff will mean less opt-outs. No, it won't. 
No, it won't. Uh, you're going to render the other bowl games totally meaningless, even more so than you have already. But I don't know who told you a kid would never opt out of a playoff game. But if you got a team that's a seven seed that is a 24 and a half point underdog, all it takes is one. All it takes is one instance of a big time kid opting out of a playoff game. Then you have a trend on your hands. This is not how you stop opt outs. It's not how you do it at all. Do you want to know an actual fix? An actual fix is to convince the NCAA or do it without them that there should be actual compensation packages and revenue sharing packages tied to these bowl games to incentivize the bowl game. And I'm not just talking about paying both teams the same amount. Like if you make the uh, Meineke Car Care Bowl, which I doesn't I don't think exists anymore, we're not just going to give every kid on every team $7,500. Do it like the XFL used to do with their paychecks. Now, the winner is going to take 75% of the pot to divvy up amongst their roster, and the loser is going to take 25%. You're not getting paid until you play in the game, though. If you want to actually make bowl games meaningful again after the damage that you've done to them by calling them meaningless, that's an actual fix. Not this garbage that people are talking about expanding the playoff. That's not fixing anything. What that's doing is looking at the front yard, saying, Colin, we got a weed in the front yard. And then Colin says, I'll fix it. And then he runs a lawnmower over the weed and says, look, the weed's gone. No, it's not. The weed's going to be back in two days. If you grew up in the South, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You just had a temporary fix. You put lipstick on the pig and then you feel good about yourself. You got your expanded playoff. You're not fixing anything. How about having actual fixes? Don't get me wrong. There are things that need to be fixed about this sport, but I, I want to tell you one of the very detrimental aspects that you have the power to fix. And, um, you know, it sounds kind of like I'm hopping point to point right here. It's all connected. There are a lot of voices in this sport right now that have no business in this sport. You know exactly who I'm talking about. You can look around on Twitter and know the clowns who are not passionate about this sport. They don't have this sport's best interest at the forefront of their work. They don't seem to love what they're doing. They view it as a job or a chore. They were on the career interstate headed one direction and... Fate made them get off at the exit ramp they didn't really want to get off on, and it said sports media. And so for whatever reason, here they are. Those people do not need to have a valued voice at this table. But I'm not advocating for anyone to lose their job. Far be it for me to say that. What I'm telling you is you got the power. Your clicks, your readership, your subscription, whatever the case may be, where your eyeballs go and where your attention goes, energy will then flow in this industry. It's what's given someone like me the opportunity to go from running some independent YouTube channel out of a news studio in Columbus, Georgia, two years ago, to working for the biggest media company on planet Earth two years later. You did that. And so if you did it with me, I'm watching our dude RJ Young go from doing an independent channel of his own to being hired by Fox Sports the other day. And congratulations to him, by the way. It's not about whether you agree with folks all the time. It's about getting people who are passionate about the game and love the game and giving them your attention and looking away from these clowns on national platforms who do nothing but trash the sport in really fancy terminology sometimes so they're able to dress it up enough. You have that power. And there's one more thing you have the power to do. You have the power as a fan, as a, as a collective, as a monolith, College football fans have the power to hold their athletic departments accountable because really at the forefront of what it's going to take to fix college football is not expanding the playoff. It's not lowering the scholarship cap limit. If you did nothing more 
then made better hiring decisions on the front end, you would reap the benefits on the back end. There is no exclusivity that ensures only a few teams are going to win in this sport. There isn't. If there was, LSU would never have made it to the table last year. They went from having not made the playoff to making it and winning. Why? Because they got the right coaches in there. They had the right transfer mix in there. They had the right culture. They had the right players. Like, they did it. Okay, Texas is capable of that. Southern Cal is capable of that. Tennessee is capable of that. Clemson has shown you how to do it. They've only become a national program, a national powerhouse in the last few years. It's not the system keeping you down. Some people make crappy hires. You get crappy results, and then you say, well, this college football, this complex out here, this system, it's keeping us down. You're keeping you down. In a lot of cases, the mirror is what's keeping you down, not the system. So these are some actual fixes that I think could take place in college football that would actually yield positive results to where five years from now, you got several more folks at the table because they've done what they need to do on the front end and they've rewired programs and they've changed their way of thinking. That's how you get positive results. Not running the lawnmower over the weed, which is what a lot of people are suggesting, whether they know it or not. I think we've talked enough tonight, Colin. That's 45 minutes. So again, we are back. Um, as, as long as we're, we're going to be allowed to be back here live in the studio, uh, we have got a lot coming up in January. I mean, I didn't even talk about new coaches and coaches on the move. What's Tennessee doing with Kevin Steele? South Carolina had a big-time decommitment today from quarterback Gunnar Stockton. Is he headed to Auburn? I think he will be. Uh, Brian Harson, we got a lot more to talk about with him at Auburn. Sarks at Texas now. Last night, 24 hours ago, he was busy coaching in a national championship game. Today he was taking a picture with a cow on the field in Austin. I know what his name is, but it just sounds better when I just say a cow. Uh, so we've got a lot to look forward to. Appreciate you being here. Make sure you subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. I cannot, in strong enough words, encourage that. We've got mm, some subtle changes, I guess, coming to the show. Uh, it, it's going to slowly evolve over the offseason to where when we get to the next college football season, and probably before that, probably the spring, if we have a spring, um, we're excited about the product we're going to be bringing you. I'll just say that. There is a lot of energy being invested around these parts in late kick. I'm very happy about that. I appreciate it. And so, you know, again, nothing's happening without you guys making it possible. So I thank you every show and I'll continue to thank you for that. Until next time, which will be Thursday night for director Colin, for producer Jordan on the podcast side of things. I'm Josh Pate. Happy to be back live in case you haven't noticed. Uh, take care. Have a great rest of your evening and God bless. 